right. additions to what we were saying this morning that might be helpful to you as you think about how you make your church effective um, in evangelism, some practical things that might flow from that. Um, firstly, again, it's my observation is that happy churches are growing churches. Happy churches are growing churches. That's bound up with this idea of um, the kind of the life of the Christian community. If basically the people coming to church are enjoying church, enjoying being with one another, if there aren't big tensions and disagreements, um, then basically that will flow over into the way that they relate to others. A church is unlikely to be growing when people come to it simply out of dogged loyalty. Uh, Christians, particularly evangelical Christians, are quite loyal people. People will come to your church and keep coming to your church long past the point when they've actually enjoyed being part of it. <laughs> but if they are coming to your church out of loyalty, don't expect them to basically be working to grow the church. They just won't. So I think um, uh, it's very um, important to create that atmosphere in which people are happy and contented. Now, that is not at all saying church is to be consumerist. I mean that in a biblically shaped way of being a happy church. But it seems to me that often if church is got right, then actually kind of growth sort of happens because it's the overflow of people's own spiritual joy, encouragement and enthusiasm. Uh, so labour um, up for that. I think a second thing is because relational evangelism is so important, one of the great dangers for us as leaders is we make it difficult for people to do that because we basically think they owe us all their time. So actually what we fall into doing is wanting to co-opt everybody into serving our projects and our sort of um, uh, agendas rather than thinking about how um, they can be freed to do that work of evangelism and growth. We'll think about this in a moment as we think about dynamics. For some people, their primary mission field will be nowhere near your church because they commute to work somewhere else. It's sacrificial to say that their primary ministry is to do evangelism amongst a group of people who, if they're converted, will never ever come to your church, just geographically. But that might be their primary ministry. Can you see the problem? We as elders and pastors have this burden to grow our own church, but actually that both means that we might kind of, in a sense, take up all of people's times. And, and we actually create a culture that the most committed Christian is the one who's doing everything in church. And actually we're deep down slightly reluctant to invest in people doing ministry that's never going to benefit our own particular local church because we're thinking institutionally, and there are all pressures bound up with us um, in that score. Thirdly, um, watch out for and make best use of your natural personal evangelists. In my experience, in most churches, the people who have most evangelistic impact are a relatively small number of people who just seem to be brilliantly gifted in that. They're the ones who are always having conversations with people about Christ. They're the ones who invite the most people to the events. They're just the people around whom others seem to come and gather. They're just particularly gifted in that way. Those are the people you want to most free up to do that work. If you've got a growth strategy. They're the people you least want to be sticking on all your other rotors so they've got no time. They might be the most gifted and most able to do some of those other things, but actually they might be uniquely the people who are most able to help the church to grow. So that's just three thoughts practically about kind of organising church. Make sure church is happy, don't overburden people, and um, <coughs> particularly free up and use your personal evangelists. And, it, and a lot of it in ministry terms is about investing in and encouraging the congregation and what they are doing. Again, our natural inclination is to make ourselves the centre. That what we do is the really important thing. Preaching all of it. In actual fact, if you think about the church as a, a kind of a missional community, it's what the congregation does. An awful lot of our work is enabling them to be able to, um, uh, to do that. So um, those are a few thoughts just flowing from where we were. We're going to turn in the second section to think a little bit more about the challenge of growing the church and discipleship. 
um, particularly given um, a, a kind of the challenges of um, demography um, and how that works out in the life of churches. So the way that contemporary society um, a, a, a kind of works. But again, we'll start by reading um, God's Word. And I thought it would be uh, good to read Titus uh, chapter 2. And the thing really just to notice here is the way that, um, uh, sort of, as Paul writes to Titus, he, as it were, sectionalises groups of the congregation to be discipled and have the gospel to be brought um, to bear on them. So the same fundamental gospel message, but worked out in these uh, different groups. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ has appeared and that it brings salvation to all people. Thank you that it teaches uh, us to say no to ungodliness and to live godly and good lives. Uh, we want that to be the case for everybody who knows Christ in our churches. Thank you for how Titus was instructed to teach and train all of these dif different groups, that they might live godly and good lives. Father, please help us to know how to do that in our churches, so that the body might be built up. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think the challenge for us is how do you go about growing the church? How do you go about growing um, the church, not just in numbers, but in discipleship and um, maturity? Well, at one level, you might think that is relatively easy. Well, you start by seeing people converted. So um, that is maybe uh, children growing up in the life of the church in Christian homes who come to personal faith in Christ, or people from outside of the church who are reached by evangelism and become new members of the church. So you grow by uh, starting with um, people's conversion. And then you invest in those people and you disciple them into godliness. You teach them what it means to follow Christ in every area of their life. You equip them to become committed church members who are living for Jesus, to function as part of the community. Then amongst those, you will train them for ministry. You'll want to see what are their gifts, what can they contribute to the life of the community. So you'll want to help identify their gifts, develop their gifts, and then deploy them to be able to serve in the life of the church. Maybe there might be particular ministries that they're able to um, uh, 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 sort of help with. And then even beyond that, amongst that group, there'll be those who you want to start, start beginning to identify to be uh, leaders in the church. So there are people who, because of their gifting and because of their character, uh, begin to show that they could be the people to exercise some authority within the life of this community. There may be potentially elders or deacons, so you want to help train them up to the added responsibilities that will go with that role. Maybe there'll be some in the church who you see being called into full-time ministry of one kind or another. And so for them, you want to encourage them and then you'll send them to be maybe missionaries or to maybe train as uh, pastors. And you'll do all of that expecting, effectively, a lifelong commitment to the local church. Where people will start as new converts and you'll see them all the way through 
to local church ministry or possibly to being sent. In a sense, it's, it's the kind of um, uh, old expectation of the Anglican church that they'll be with you for life. You hatch, match, you dispatch. Um, basically, they are in this church. Well, that kind of pattern of church growth, it seems to me, reflects primarily a previous era when people's lives were fairly stable and settled. As I go around and visit churches, the number of people in churches who have been there all their lives is very small. In some communities, still the case because the community is a stable community where people neither come nor go. But in many church contexts, the vast majority of people in church have not been there all of their lives, and nor do they expect to be there all of their lives. Uh, The contemporary population is transient. People are mobile and they move regularly. There are all sorts of reasons that have contributed to that. The availability of relatively cheap transport, the ability to keep up with your family and others and friends through various forms of technology. People are transient. And that means that very often populations are not primarily geographical, attached to a particular area. For lots of people, they belong primarily to a particular social group or a particular friendship group. That's where they find their primary identity and that's where they live out their life. Uh, Beyond that, uh, populations are increasingly dispersed so that people commute. Home and work and leisure are all separated from one another. So people uh, not only don't live in a geographical region, but their life is split into different places in which they find themselves. And uh, uh, because of the um, uh, availability of travel, um, individuals are often um, away from their home location more often. They're visiting their friends and family, travelling all around the country to um, see them and keep up with them. Those who have a close-knit group of friends from university will meet regularly with their friends in other places in the country. The availability of uh, kind of relatively easy and cheap transport has led to the um, expectation that kind of people will gather for a a growing number of family events. It's not just Christmas anymore, it's every Mother's Day, every Father's Day, every birthday, every anniversary. The expectation is we'll get together and everybody will be able to come. So you're away from home. Now, that's not quite true of all uh, people. David Goodhue, in his analysis of what happened post-Brexit, divides people up into the somewheres and the anywheres. And in some ways, that's a helpful way of thinking about it. There are some people who are geographically rooted, and there are others who are in floating um, uh, communities of relationship. And very often, they overlap. Most communities have some element of both existing in the same place. So you might take a particular town or a particular area and you'll find that there are some people living in that place who are geographically located but there's also a whole load of people who just are happen to be in that space but it's not primary to their identity and where they live their lives. Uh, I think that raises kind of all sorts of challenges for uh, gospel ministry. My guess is about where you are. I know it's not universal for all of you, but my guess is that Oxford is a relatively a highly transient area with um, actually probably a greater degree of mobility and throughput than most communities, particularly with the university, which brings in people periods of time, um, and particularly um, uh, with high housing cost that has um, a a consequence that at certain stages of life, people have to leave in order to buy suitable accommodation. Those are just dynamics against which one has to um, kind of work. Uh, Most people, I think, in um, uh, life um, uh, pass through a series of identifiable stages, and they may well live them in different places. On the one hand, there might be where they grow up, where they're children. Then there's the stage of where they go to university, and they'll spend uh, three years uh, there. Then there'll be where they start their career when they're first single, their first job. 
they may stay on at the university town that they were in or they may move uh, somewhere else. Um, there then may be where they live when they're first married or first living together. And that's a new stage of life. Um, there then... ...kids in school that suddenly geographical location becomes quite important to you in a way that is not true for much of the rest of life. Then once children have left home, there's a different question as to where empty nesters choose to live when some of those restraints perhaps have been removed. And then, of course, there's when pe where people live when they're retired, elderly, um, and particularly um, the stage at which they're becoming more infirm. And I suspect that for people, many people will live through those different stages. And they'll be in different places, and if they're Christians, they will therefore be in different churches as part of that process. And I think um, much of this then has quite a lot of impact on church life and leadership. And you may well uh, feel this in your church. With a highly uh, mobile population, there is constant turnover of people coming and going. Um, I've heard it described by friends as the church feels like it's just a revolving door. Constantly welcoming new people in and saying goodbye to others. And in church life, that can become emotionally exhausting, particularly for the people who actually do stay there for the longer term. It makes you much more reluctant to invest in relationships because you don't think those relationships are going to be enduring and lasting. You're constantly saying goodbye to the people just at the point at which you've really connected with them. At a leadership point, it means that you are constantly losing people you have trained and who are loyal to you. Those that you've nurtured, those that you've taught how to do ministry. And just at the point at which they're becoming useful, they move somewhere else. And you lose the benefit of the personal investment that you've made. Um, now, on the other side of that is you may well gain people who've been trained elsewhere. Now, that might be a great blessing because you haven't had to train them. But they also might not do things quite the way that you would do them. They might be used to a different church culture and a different structure. And their natural loyalties are to other leaders who have trained them rather than to you. You know, the kind of person who's in church and, you know, their refrain is, well, when I was at X church, this is how we did Sunday school. Actually, they're, 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 they're in a sense, they're not loyal to you and your model of how to do ministry yet because basically they've been shaped elsewhere. And you've got to kind of incorporate them into your team. It's not necessarily straightforward. There's a particular challenge in many churches with young people. In many of our churches, a vast amount of energy is invested in Sunday school and young people, only to see them all leave at 18 and go to university elsewhere and never come back. In some contexts, they may come back at a greater stage. In Market Harbour, our dynamic is everybody leaves at 18, thinking it's the dullest town ever. They move back when they're 30 and they've got children because they remember what an idyllic childhood they had there. Basically, that means the 18 to 30 age group is almost entirely missing, both from the town and from the church. It's just a dynamic of the town that we find ourselves in. And because of the mobility and the way that families are diverse, friends are diverse, committed people in church are away far more often than they used to be. They're simply not there every week. It's not necessarily that they're off doing bad things. It's not that they're kind of in a consumerist way deciding, I'm not going to go to church this weekend, I'm going to go and kind of climb Snowdon or whatever. Often it's a family event or it's a meeting with Christian friends from somewhere else. It's not intrinsically a bad thing. But cumulatively, it means that they're not in church as regularly as people used to be in the past. Expectations of what it means to be regular have changed. People who are there two Sundays out of four think they're regular members of the church. That actually has implications for the way that our expository preaching series works, because actually you can't expect anymore that everybody is going to be there week on week building on things. In many churches, actually, people are more committed to their midweek small group in terms of trying to be there than they are actually to Sundays. 
in terms of their, their timing. Uh, as I said, the uh, greatest period of commitment is usually when they've got kids at school and they're bound in an area and their life is more constrained in terms of their ability to come and go. Now, I think many of those things are just realities of people's modern lives. And as we uh, kind of think about how we minister, I just think we need to take them into account in the way that we build our churches, plan our ministries. So really this is about trying to think about what implications does this have for the way that we do church and the way that we do discipleship, taking into account that general uh, background. How do we respond to the challenges of a highly mobile culture in which people are not going to be geographically committed in one place for the whole of their lives. Well, let me suggest a number of things. And uh, sorry, and actually, those of you who are in leadership, because of your investment, you are the people who are most likely to be committed for longest. <coughs> the danger is of you thinking everybody else ought to be like you, rather than recognising that you have reasons for that commitment and, and investment. Firstly, I just want to say, very important, don't get frustrated. It's actually incredibly easy to become frustrated, if not angry, about the patterns of modern life and the way that people are living. You suddenly wish everybody would change, settle, and be as committed as you. And you might look out on your congregation, and they're not there this week, and they're not there next week, and you're just frustrated with um, uh, sort of how that is impacting. Well, I think we just need to recognise that there is something of just a sociological fact in terms of what's uh, going on here. And the probability is that in the short term, you're not going to be able to change it. Actually, there are some pastors who fall into kind of railing against it. I just don't think it makes any difference. In fact, it alienates people. Uh, so I think be careful to avoid that um, frustration. In fact, I'm not sure that it, it's uh, something unique in history. There have been periods of time in which mobility has been very much a part of people's uh, kind of lives. In fact, that was true of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, with its common language, its universal peace, its well-travelled roads, its trade networks, read the New Testament and you find that people are often far more mobile. In fact, there is some evidence that suggests that people were more mobile in the Roman Empire, um, that, that that degree of mobility was never recovered until the late 1960s in Western culture. But think about people like Priscilla and Aquila who kind of pitch up in Rome, they pitch up in Corinth, they pitch up in Ephesus. As far as I can tell, they're not actually travelling evangelists, but they have a mobility that their life and their work and their involvement takes them to multiple places. In the Industrial Revolution, there was obviously mass movement of people as people began to chase jobs and began to um, chase work. It's not a, a unique um, phenomenon. And I think we have to work with what is rather than um, uh, 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 sort of uh, expecting the world to conform to um, our ideal. One of the challenges for us, I think, is expecting um, new Christians to kind of behave with the mentality of mature Christians from the off. The ability to commit and be stable and give more time to the community requires a degree of maturity. And I think that um, uh, uh, sort of we mustn't assume Again, think about the pattern of life that people are converted from. They won't overnight change that. Um, in actual fact, if your church is doing its job, you should always have people coming in who are immature new believers. Um, the church is much more like an escalator than a lift. The church is much more like an escalator than a lift, but most of us would prefer it was a lift. In a lift, a, a group of people get in together and they all travel at the same speed to the top. They're all in the same place. You go as a group. If you're on an escalator, you've got basically people getting on at the bottom and getting off at the top. It's constantly in motion and people are constantly moving up. Do you get the picture? That's what church is like. As you have people at all sorts of levels of maturity, joining, being discipled, growing. That's more complex to uh, manage. Most of us crave in church to reach to a point where we think the job's done. But if you think church is a constant escalator, it will never be done. It's about constantly moving people on to greater 
um, maturity. Don't get frustrated. Secondly, understand the dynamics of your own context. Understand the dynamics of your own context. Each particular context is <coughs> different. And you need to, in a sense, I think, be sensitive to and uh, work on understanding the context of where you are and the context of the people you're trying to reach. So, uh, you need to kind of ask, be asking questions like these. How long do people live here on average? If I'm in this community, how long do people live here? What's the norm that I should expect? What's the age profile of where I'm living? Is it skewed to younger people, older people, middle-aged people, kind of young graduates? Most communities have uh, an uneven spread of kind of um, ages in the community. Are there particular age gaps within the demography of the church and the community? As I said, where I live, not many 20s to 30s. In some communities, because of house pricing, not many people before 40 now. Because only when you hit 40 can you actually afford a home. Now, if you are living in a community in which um, uh, basically most people are over 40 because of housing costs, there's no point beating yourself up if you don't have a thriving 20s group. That demography just doesn't exist in the place where um, you are. What's the preponderant demography? And how do the people in that group uh, live? So again, if you're in Oxford City Centre, presumably it's a fairly transient population of students, postgrads, international students, and a few who stick around and have made Oxford their home. Uh, understanding the, di the dynamics of where you are helps you to identify the opportunities and the challenges, and it helps you to know um, uh, to have realistic expectations. I think that's what's so important. It helps you to have realistic expectations of what ministry will be like, what the community will be like. Um, it's an important question to ask these uh, questions for evangelism. Who do you want to reach and who realistically will you be able to reach? Where are they? What are their connections? What are their time commitments? For the vast majority of people, who are working, their primary mission field is almost inevitably the workplace. That's where they spend most of their time. Those are the people that they're rubbing up against. Again, my observation, an awful lot of uh, kind of men with families who are working have virtually no time outside of work and actually doing necessary things in relation to their families. No point expecting them to be able to spend vast amounts of time building relationships and doing evangelism and opening new connections. There's just no capacity. Um, opportunities open up at different ages and stages of life. Again, I notice this in lots of churches. There are a real moments of opportunity when people have children for the first time. They suddenly join NCT groups, mums and toddlers groups. A whole new set of connections are built up with a group of people who've got something in common. There's an opportunity to maximise the benefits of those times. Same is true, often sort of people who are retired or early retired are often the people who have the opportunity to engage in the community in a way that those who are working don't. Um, it seems to me many of those life stages pass quite quickly. The window of opportunity for a young mum with NCT group and mums and toddlers is actually quite short. So it becomes key to help people make the most of that opportunity in the short window that is presented. And if you understand the dynamic of your own context, then, th then don't expect models from other contexts to be directly replicable in yours. <coughs> it's all too easy to look at churches that are doing something somewhere else and not to think carefully about how that might be um, working because of the particular context they're in. So what works in one place isn't necessarily replicable directly. You can copy it to the letter 
and most of us would love to have a system that says if you do this, this, and this, you'll get sort of results and an outcome. But the church dynamics and the way things work are affected by this sort of demographic and sociological background. And that means that ministry models from elsewhere and also ministry models from the past <coughs> can't simply be replicated with an expectation of the same outcomes. There might be things to learn. There might be things that you can take and think we could try that, do that in our context. We could rework it to fit where we are. But it probably won't be directly transferable. Thirdly, have a bigger vision for the growth of the kingdom. Have a bigger vision for the growth of the kingdom. Uh, and this is the tension between our commitment to local church and our commitment to the work of the gospel more broadly. The reality is, if we're leading local churches, we've got an institution we're responsible for that probably has a building to pay for and staff to um, uh, sort of support. There is an organisational necessity. Running a church is basically like running a small family business. And there's all the vulnerability that goes with that. So to put it bluntly, you don't want to lose customers. <laughs> you don't want to lose your support base. You have to invest in yourself in order to enable the business to continue, if I can put it that way. But that becomes much more different, difficult when you have this kind of uh, broadly mobile population. And I think we need to more and more see how our local churches fit into the bigger picture of gospel growth. So that we see our local churches as first and foremost not building themselves, but building the wider kingdom and contributing to that. That will help us overcome our frustration. It will help us to rejoice in what God is doing. It will help us feel encouraged rather than constantly feel a sense of loss and threat. So the mission of your church may well be training and envisioning people to be excellent members of other churches. That actually may well be the mission of your church. It may well be training and envisioning people to be excellent members of other churches. You may be a church whose primary ministry is having people for a period of time before sending them to go elsewhere. Uh, if you're a church with a, a kind of a lot of young people who are going to go on to university, your mission at some level might be training and equipping them to be excellent CU members when they go to university to make the most of that unique evangelistic opportunity. That's what your ministry to them uh, kind of is. If you've got a lot of young graduates in your church, your task may actually be training and preparing them to be biblically faithful Sunday school teachers and home group leaders who will ultimately be serving in another church. The point at which they're useful may be the very point at which they move on. <laughs> if you've got uh, international students or refugees, uh, actually you may well be training up missionaries to go to their own people in the future, to grow the church in many of those countries that we wouldn't be able to um, uh, enter. And, and on the other side of the coin, we need to be grateful for those who come from other churches where others have invested in them and to acknowledge that actually they're not completely our work, that we've benefited from the labours of others that have contributed um, uh, to them. So I think we need to judge the success of our churches not just by the growth of the church itself, but by the way that it serves the wider cause of the gospel and the wider impact that it has. The impact of a church is not its current size. The impact of a church is not its current size. But what are the people who've passed through your church doing now? <coughs> How are they being um, used? Uh, it's a reminder to us, and I think it should be obvious in a sense, and it's obvious in the New Testament, that the work of the gospel is interconnected and mutually dependent. We actually kind of work together to grow the kingdom in our different places. So again, for example, your church may find itself in a place 
where the nature of the location and the age and stage of your congregation means to say that your church is a church that is wealthier than average. My guess is in areas of Oxford, there's quite a lot of wealth around. Church may well have a greater degree of wealth than um, uh, if you were in um, other communities. Well, that might mean that one of the responsibilities of your church is to give that to others who are engaged in ministry rather than simply to use it for yourselves. Again, it's easy for us to just keep investing in ourselves and um, the result of that is that wealthy churches in wealthy places become wealthier churches with even fancier ministries and even bigger teams. They've got a bigger kingdom vision. They might think about how they have a responsibility to kind of invest in the gospel more widely than that. Um, No church ever feels wealthy because a good thriving gospel church will always be operating to the limit of its resources. It requires a degree of self-sacrifice to be able to say... Um, Actually, we've got lots. Others haven't got very much at all. Therefore, we accept a degree of limitation on what we have in order to be able to help the gospel to grow elsewhere. That requires a bigger uh, kingdom um, uh, vision. So I think we need to have a vision for growing the church, not just our church. That's the big task that we're ultimately involved in. And we need to think that through, what that means um, for us. And I think that bigger vision needs to be owned not just by um, uh, the kind of the pastor, it actually needs to be owned by the elders, by the leaders, and indeed by the congregation. And I think one of our key tasks is to basically ensure that that vision is owned and understood by the church as um, a, a whole. And inevitably, um, uh, having a bigger vision will create tensions. Because within church life, there will be always those who who basically want to see the church cater for their particular needs or for the needs of their particular group. The task of leadership is to try to sort of put all that together in the bigger picture of the overall gospel vision. And um, I think it's important to uh, kind of, in a sense, give back to those who've given to you. I remember when we were kind of leading a church in Birmingham and uh, kind of church grew quite rapidly. Um, It was easy to think that kind of we'd done something special for all of that growth. I think in retrospect, in a town in which you have 36,000 students turning up every year, it was quite easy to mop up good Christian students who came from a whole variety of churches across the country and gather them together and convince yourself you'd done a great job. Actually, the reality is that an awful lot of that work was done by the churches that raised those people to be Christian by the time they came to uh, university. It's easy to take and then not to see any responsibility to give back. So, um, have a bigger vision for the growth of the uh, kingdom. Fourthly, um, work cooperatively to reach all communities work cooperatively to reach all communities. I don't think any church can reach every community, but all communities need to be reached. No one church can reach every community, but all communities need to um, be reached. Um, Your particular local church, because of where it is, because of who's in it, because of the opportunities, you will have um, a unique community that you can reach well. But there will be communities that you can't reach. Either you're not in them or you don't particularly connect with them. You may not be well placed to be able to do that. I don't think um, every church is called to reach every community, but together we need to make sure that every community is reached. And I suspect in a city like Oxford or an area like this, there will be um, a plethora of different contexts. There'll be the student community, there'll be the kind of um, uh, wealthy community, there'll be those who are kind of from a working class background, there'll be those who are in benefit communities, there'll be small towns, there'll be kind of villages, there'll be rural communities. It's unlikely any one church is going to be able to reach all of those. Instead, it's the churches collectively that will need to think about how all those communities get reached. 
So you'll need to partner with others to make sure that everybody is reached. And that partnership will involve connecting with other works, maybe planting other works, certainly praying for them, um, maybe being willing to invest money in them, maybe lending or sending people to them. It's all part of having that bigger vision that wants to see everywhere um, uh, kind of reached. So again, in, in your local church, in your local church leadership, do you have that bigger vision for the wider work of the gospel? I think that's the great advantage of gathering together like this as people in a particular area. It raises your horizons to understand what's happening and also to begin to think about where nothing's happening and more needs to be done. Fifthly, have a targeted strategy for discipling everyone in the church. Have a targeted strategy for discipling everyone in the church. I think it's um, uh, easy to adopt a model of discipleship um, and try to look for a one-size-fits-all model of discipleship that will deal with everyone. It's efficient and it's simple, whether that be through small groups, one-to-one, the way that you leaders invest your time. But actually, I think our discipleship strategy needs to be tailored to the groups that we have. Let me um, uh, say what I mean. If you've got students in your congregation, basically you're going to find they're going to be with you for two to three years. The question becomes, how do you invest in them for that two to three year period that enables them to make the most of their student opportunity, but then also prepares them for moving on to the next stage of life? You have a unique window, but it's a narrow window. And so therefore, surely, if you want to disciple those people, you, in a sense, want to make the most of that unique opportunity. Um, Or, um, if your congregation has a lot of people who are in an early stage of their career, they're people who've just started work, they're maybe going to be be with you four or five years as a norm. How do you particularly want to invest in them for that period of time? What is it most important to do with them? to again enable them to make the most of that moment of opportunity, but also to prepare them for um, the future. Many of them will go on to become transfer growth. They will move elsewhere, they'll belong to other churches. So are you basically uh, preparing them for being able to work in a different church context so that they will be useful to the church um, that they move on to? Uh, If you're a church that uh, kind of has a lot of people that come to you transferring from elsewhere, maybe you're one of those churches that a lot of people move to just because people move for jobs in in your area. How do you disciple the people who come to your church from elsewhere? Have you thought about kind of what you might call intensive initiation? Do you actually invest particular (coughs) energy in helping those who are from another church to be able to function in your church? That might just require some quite significant upfront time. But if you put that investment in, they'll then be able to function altogether more easily in your church once they've come to you. See what I'm saying? They might be used to certain patterns. You need to help them to understand your patterns, your ways of doing things. Now, you can just leave them and hope that over time they'll get that up by osmosis. Or you might think, actually, this is a a key way that our church grows. So what I'm going to do is find a way of investing particularly in uh, those um, uh, people. Uh, In the life of um, church, as you develop your ministries, um, it's partly about not expecting everyone to be supportive of every initiative. Again, I think that's a problem in our church life. We tend to think that as we have initiatives, either for ministries that benefit the church or that do outreach, we kind of want everybody to be supportive of all of them. Whereas that's not, I think, realistic. So again, thinking about your workers who commute. Their workplace is likely to be their primary mission field. How are you going to support and encourage them in making the most of that opportunity? They're probably least likely to be able to be involved in regular community evangelism. 
they're more likely to take a friend to um, a uh, carol service in the city uh, in which they work rather than in your church. Now that's not a failure, but if you burden them with what you've really got to do is bring somebody to our carol service rather than saying, why don't you make the most of an opportunity to take your colleagues to a carol service? Are you really making the most of that opportunity um, that they have? We have to be careful against not simply wanting to co-opt people to our own projects. It may be unrealistic for them. It may ultimately therefore be ineffective. So as I said, you need a targeted strategy for discipling everyone to help them to grow in Christ and to be most effective in ministry. And I think that requires thoughtfulness about what it is you're trying to accomplish. It means thinking about the people that you have an opportunity to minister to and then working out ways that with the resources that you have as a church you can best invest um, uh, in those uh, people. And then um, lastly, on the back of that, I think remember and celebrate all gospel progress. Remember and celebrate all gospel progress. In this culture of transience and mobility, much of church life basically feels like loss. Because often you're letting people go and saying um, goodbye. People leave, your investment in that sense feels wasted, your church is left struggling to find leaders when you've been investing in people who you hoped would take on those um, roles. Uh, people move on and they're quickly forgotten, um, particularly in churches with a high turnover population. Um, uh, in churches with a high turnover population, people leave, new people come, you become ancient history far more quickly. <laughs> just because there's a whole new group of people who um, come around. And people often only see what is immediately um, uh, before them. So I think it's important for us, for our own encouragement, to basically remember and celebrate all gospel um, progress. Remember the people who we have invested in. Rejoice in the way that they are being uh, used. Help our congregations to um, rejoice um, uh, in that. I think one of uh, my greatest personal encouragements is running into people who were um, at our church in Birmingham and seeing what they're now doing. A raft of people who um, are either church members, maybe elders, some have gone into ministry and become pastors or planters. And they're only with us for a period of time, but that opportunity and that investment has kind of now led to them serving the kingdom in ways that none of us would have guessed when we first met them. And that ought to be hugely encouraging, to have been a part of the way that God has brought that um, uh, sort of about. <coughs> so I think in many of our church lives, people see the numbers don't necessarily grow. They don't see huge expansion, and they wonder, is God doing anything? And it's basically because we haven't remembered and celebrated the progress that's being made. And I think that, that, that's a sort of a significant aspect um, for um, our local church life. Or maybe it's the kids who grew up in church, who people invested such a significant amount of time in, and then they all left. It's celebrating maybe what they're doing now, where they're, where they're serving. And that's actually one of the advantages of gathering together at conferences like Word Alive, is you begin to just sort of see people who've kind of you've seen at various different stages of life and then you suddenly discover where they are and how they're being um, uh, sort of used. So I think many of our churches have more impact than the mere numbers might suggest. And it's really helpful for us to remember that and celebrate that and give thanks to God for what we've been um, able uh, to do. So there are a raft of challenges that I think connected with the contemporary kind of context in which we find ourselves. Growing churches is no longer about working with a group of people who will be there for their lifetime. We have to wrestle with the fact that in our churches people will be coming and going. 
different stages of life. I know there'll be some who buck that trend and they're great. But in the main, I think that's a reality a lot of us will be wrestling with in local church. And the challenge is, how do we make our ministry work with that and make the most of the opportunity um, that it presents? Well, there's a raft of ideas. I hope you're thinking, I recognise that situation. Um, does anybody want, should we ask some questions? Anything anybody wants to ask or observations you've got to make? I think you've put your finger on one of the challenges, actually. And that, again, that we've got to kind of work really hard to build communities with people passing through, actually, to try to create something of that loving community. And there'll be a mix in most churches of some people who've been there for quite a long time, some people who've been there for a medium-length time, some people who've been there for a short time. And um, in, in our church life... <coughs> It's about building in structures and opportunities that kind of build community that work across that spectrum. Um, sometimes that's actually about building in much more social community life together that is easy to access for people. So um, it's not the case that unless you've been here for five years, you're somehow on the edge of the periphery and you're not welcomed in. Finding collective ways of getting everybody together to relate and value everybody becomes quite important, I think, in transient communities. So, the more transient a community is, the, the, the more often you need to do things and the more quickly you need to do things in order to be able to generate that loving community feel. So people can come into a community quite quickly, but you have to make it a community to which you can enter quite quickly by building <coughs> that into the structure. It's not a full answer, but... Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, let me say, traditional church and um, uh, kind of contemporary church. Um, some communities, it's still true in parts of uh, kind of Scotland, some kind of Hebridean islands, church finishes at 12 o'clock, everybody straight out the door and nobody stays at all. The reason for that is because they're all living in the same community, they all know each other already, they've done church, they actually don't need to socialise. In many of our churches, the coffee time is hugely significant. It's actually a crucial part of the community life. And I don't know even, I think churches that are thriving and growing often have coffee that people don't want to go home from. It's a good and healthy sign of a church. If basically, come about one o'clock, you're having to kick them out rather than them all rushing off. That becomes where community is built. Um, so actually investing in the social space, what makes it attractive for people to stay, and then allowing time for that and seeing it as a crucial part of the ministry because it's what builds the community. Um, I, th I think. It depends on your context, but therefore naff coffee and biscuits generally don't normally build community. You, you want to make people stick around with one another um, because it just provides a context in which some of that can happen. Um, and in some it's actually structured welcoming, watching out for the new people, watching out for here. So you, people who are moving in get welcomed in very quickly. Um, again, the danger in church communities is that people who've been around for a long time think they've got the prime call on attention. Actually, it's the new people who have prime call on attention if you want to grow the church. Um, sorry. It was slightly different, but to what extent should we be encouraging Christians as they move up the escalator to, to actually buck that trend of being transient? And how much should we say, well, no one seems to tell us that we're going to stop moving around? 
Um, I think I'd probably want to do that more in terms of personal discipleship with individuals rather than make it a big thing that I'm laying on heavily on the church congregation as a whole. So I think as people get invested in ministries, as they get stuck into the community, it's more about encouraging them to do that. So I think um, it's the encouragement of getting involved rather than berating them for not being involved. Does that, does that make any sense? Um, uh, and I think that that is often best done at a personal level rather than um, actually, uh, rather than being the public teaching of the church that is highlighting that as a problem. I think the, the context and the way of doing it, and at least an awareness of an understanding of what the pull on people is. So if you're asking them to be more committed, generally you're asking them to give up something else. So you need to think not just about why they would be more committed, but why they should give up the thing they're otherwise doing. Does that, does that make sense? And I think it helps people for them to know that you've understood what that other thing is and why it matters to them. Um, so, you know, it may well be they're away a lot because of family stuff. That just requires real sensitivity and understanding. Is that unnecessary family investment or are they trying to keep links with some non-Christian family who expect them to be around? Like, it's very individualised, I think. I'm not sure I totally understood the question. I'm, I'm, I use the word transient. Actually, what it is, it's often people in blocks of time. They're not necessarily very short periods of time. In many of these cases, it's blocks of three years, four years, five years. So um, uh, overall, it's transient compared to being in a place permanently. But it actually might be a significant block of time that people, people have to give. Um, I think it's bound to impact on ministries in the life of a church because most ministries need to be led by people who are committed and who are gifted to be able to perform that function. And in most ministries, you get people involved in a ministry where they're not quite capable of doing it, but with a view to them through experience growing in, growing in competence. Um, if people are only there for blocks of four or five years, actually you're just not gonna get as much out of them in terms of their commitment to the ministries you might do if they're there for 10 years. So that might just need to change the way that you train people, um, how quickly you get people involved in doing things. It, it might um, affect the difference between people you identify as being the likely long-term leaders of things as opposed to those who come in as sub-leaders. So for example, in, in your local church life, if you've, say, got Sunday school, you might have somebody who is competent and gifted and is likely to be around for the long term and somebody more gifted who comes along but is actually probably only going to be around for four or five years. Your temptation is to make the more gifted person the overall leader. Does that make any sense? Because of their gifting. But actually, the long-term health of the church, it might be better to keep the leader, the person who's going to be around longer, and you use the other person as part of their team. Those are the kinds of judgments that you might make in terms of the way you structure your ministries. Yeah. Um, 
I think actually from a, again a leader's point of view is you've got your members of your church it's about thinking about each member where are they what are their opportunities to who they are how do they need to grow and how can we help that so those are the kind of questions you need to ask as you're thinking about each of your members. I don't know whether as an eldership you kind of go through your members and you think about those kinds of questions, but that's the kind of thing you need to be thinking about. And then it's about getting the church to be behind that. So how often in a church do you hear somebody giving a testimony about their witness at work that's not connected with the local church, but then you get the whole church behind it to support it and see that's a really valuable ministry that we as a body are involved in. Know, by, by, I don't, I don't, you know, so I'm not going to jump on you, but you know, by supporting Clive and what he's doing in his workplace 30 w- miles away, we're actually advancing the work of the kingdom and we want to pray for that and be involved in that. I, I think that's really important in our church communities. Um, so there's another fact, the pattern of modern life thing. Thrown, I, people's holiday patterns have changed. Again, um, sort of it used to be the case that in the past holidays were taken at pretty much a narrow window in August. But partly because of kind of the ages and stages of people and partly because of cost, um, I think now that for a very large section of the year there are groups of your congregation who are away. Um, I think uh, pretty much, uh, we find in, in our church, I think kind of uh, for the summer all of the families are away because they're constrained to school holidays. For a couple of months either side of the summer, that those without children are away because they can get kind of cheap deals. The result of that is there are very few windows in the life of the church where you can expect that most people will be around for most of the time. So actually where you do your strategic stuff that addresses the whole church, there are limited windows for that. I think the periods where people are most around are probably between autumn half-term and Christmas. Because at that point, they've got an expectation they're going to get together with their family at Christmas, so there isn't the pressure to go and visit, and holidays are over and out of the way. So from mid-October until mid-December, people are away less often. The same is true from kind of early January until mid-February. Those are your two windows where you will have the highest percentage of your congregation there week by week. But for the rest of the year... I think in many churches you can have kind of uh, sort of a quarter, a third of the people away every week, either visiting or holidays. That's got a big problem there, isn't it? That's also some of your people are exhausted. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that's one of the challenges, yeah. Um, but, I mean, there are other little windows. They're just the end of the summer, before the oldies have gone off and when the families have just got back, kind of very early September period. But uh, all I'm saying is, you need to, if you're planning things, you need to, in your mind, be thinking, given the dynamics of this group, when are the people that I need to be there going to be there? <coughs> Yeah. yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, I, I mean, the, the internet and the ability to listen has been helpful in terms of enabling people to keep keep up. Uh, my observation would be it's only the really more committed who do that, and it's like lots of things: the people that really need to do it don't do it, and the people for whom it's good that they do, but it's not so essential, are the people who do it. So. As, as in lots of things in life, it, it's actually it's often the people who most need something who are the ones who aren't taking advantage of it in the way that you would you would want. So, it, it, I mean, yeah, we do, for example, we send around to the, the church the Sunday sermon by email every week. We take it for granted there'll be quite a lot of people who aren't there, and so therefore it gets emailed out on a Monday to everybody. Here's the MP3 of the sermon so you can listen to it. Um, again, that has been helped by a, sort of having a series of home groups where home groups reviews the sermon. Because what that does, it means you're at at a loss if you haven't been there. But by sending it to you on a Monday, the expectation is you will have had opportunity to listen to it by the time you meet together on a Wednesday. So that then institutionally creates something of an opportunity and an encouragement to engage with what you missed. Yeah. Do you think there's any case 
Um, uh, well, I, I do know people who run virtual churches. Um, I think you can't have effective discipleship that doesn't involve face-to-face bodily encounter. Um, it seems to me that God has created us as, as enfleshed people. Um, I actually think there's something different about listening to the word preached as a body of people together. There's a community dynamic about that which is not the same as actually listening some, to something um, even on your own on the internet. And I think that's the way we were created and we were created to assemble. Having said that, I'm conscious that in some cultures and some places the possibility of physical gathering is near impossible and therefore that might be the best that's available in some of those situations. But I absolutely don't think it's an ideal or a replacement. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it begs a more thorough question, but I'm trying to know. It's so extraordinary that should happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think we're going to split into your groups you had beforehand uh, and just reflect a little bit on what we've heard and just think about how does it apply in your church context? Um, How are these (coughs) dynamics affecting your particular (coughs) ministry? And is the church um, responding to them well? Or are there changes that you think you ought to be sort of bearing in mind? So in other words, what are you going to take away in terms of thinking about the way you do ministry? Even if it's just at the level of thinking, we need to think about that. Okay? So back into your small groups.